Welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I'm your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my co-host, Tony Ricci. If you're a first-time listener, hit the subscribe button and like the show. You can find us on YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Now, today our special guest is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. He is a nutrition and exercise physiology professor over 20 years. Jesus Christ, we've been at this a long time. Um, yep. A food industry and academic consultant, also a former competitive bodybuilder, and a huge coffee nerd throughout it all, as am I, huge coffee nerd. Um, a little bit about Lonnie. He's a member of the American Society of Nutrition and the Institute of Food Technologists. He's also the past president of the American Society of Exercise Physiologists and a fellow of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Lonnie earned his first two graduate degrees as MA and PhD in exercise phys at Kent State University, which is where I got my master's degree. Um, and then later he got his MS in nutrition slash dietetics from the same institution. That same year, he became a registered dietitian as well. He co-hosts a long-running Iron Radio podcast and its sister show, Nutrition Radio, which uh, I will appear later this year. Uh, both shows can be found, among other places, at www.nutritionradio.org. That is nutritionradio.org. Lonnie, cool. welcome to the show. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Yeah, we uh, 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 Tony and I have a little bit of fun, usually for the first minute. We just talk about nonsensical things. But in this case, at least for the first minute, Tony, how surprised were you when Adesanya looked like not the Adesanya I've seen and Strickland basically just sort of walked him down? You know, it's an interesting, I don't know if it, look, it's psychophys. Um, who knows, right? We just don't know. I, I, I was very surprised. He did look a little sluggish. Uh, but then I don't want to take anything away from Sean. Everything he threw was beautiful. It just normally doesn't contact with Izzy, right? No. So he, he was definitely off. Um, but nevertheless, it happens in sport. I'm glad it happened last night when our Dallas Cowboys beat the New York Giants 40 to nothing. <laughs> so it was great. <laughs> but I was yeah. a little surprised that Sean handled him the way he did. Yeah, both the Strickland uh, Adesanya fight and the Cowboys score was actually they're both surprising. Lonnie, I don't know if you're a fight fan, but Tony and I could talk about fights all day and I all all day long. So um, we had to touch on that very quickly. So no, it's good. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Hey, um, personal interest uh, a story, a, a question about your your background. I remember way back when you had already earned your PhD uh, with Pete Lemon. That was your uh, doctoral uh, dissertation advisor. He was my master's thesis advisor. And you told me you were going back to school to get a dietetics degree, which I thought was, I thought it was odd. I was like, well, you have a PhD. What, what will that do for you in terms of, I guess, more intellectual knowledge versus what you already have with the PhD. So explain what happened there. And then also what happened, how that evolved into you working in a nutrition department, then leaving the nutrition department. Yeah. Well, you guys are old enough to know that any group that you talk to, I think, if you're not one of them, you're less legitimate, I think. Um, and I mean, I've, I've ran into that with lots of people, certainly not just dietitians. Um, I've had athletic trainers say, you, Lana, you can't teach nutrition. That's an advanced topic and therefore only reserved for athletic trainers. And I'm like, but I have graduate degrees in this stuff, right? So um, 
the the whole story started when I mean I took my first teaching gig. I was actually ABD at Kent State over in the nutrition program, and one of the first few days in the lab, uh, this middle aged lady came into my lab, and she just seemed disgruntled as she walked up to me kind of briskly, and she said, "What you're doing here is illegal," and I said, "What." Hi, I'm Lonnie. <laughs> I mean, what do you say to that? And so, and what she was getting at was at the time I wasn't a registered dietitian. Now, of course, we all know there's no license to science. So thank God for that. Um, and so, you know, you don't have to have that credential to teach. And, you know, I would teach you nutritional physiology stuff in that program. Um, but I thought to myself, you know what? Fine, I'll get that too. So then I'll know what I know as a physiologist, right, a doctorally trained physiologist, and I'll know what you know. And as you point out, it did open doors uh, during my career. Um, the first dietetics department job, they were much more interested in my RD than my PhD. And that made me kind of sad, right? Because at the time that was a bachelor's level credential. And I understand that a license to practice something is of interest to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, in fact, you mentioned Pete Lennon, he and I had a conversation about it and I'll withhold some of, you know, he's such a good person. He's not going to badmouth anybody, but he was very surprised at some of the way that um, even in R1 institutions, you'll see the dietetics department. Um, oftentimes if someone has an, a master's and an RD, that's, that's enough. That's, you know, that's what's required. It depends on the institution. Um, but that particular department, as you pointed out, I left there, I was there for nine years actually, but I left there because it was just moving in a direction, very food service oriented kind of direction. And I had very little to offer if that was going to be the, you know, the direction of that program. So um, I went, that's when I went up to Minnesota and I taught sort of in a hybrid uh, exercise phys nutrition uh, program. Uh, and since then, that's been my favorite way to actually do nutrition, right, as an academic uh, I've been sort of in and out of academia. I know you know what that's like. It's good to get real world mm -hmm. experience. I, I don't really like that term much, but you get my point. And, um, I, you know, I'd rather talk nutrition with a fellow physiologist and get mechanistic and, and get a little deeper into the nuances, the science and that kind of stuff. So I just like those kinds of positions better. Yeah, I know. Well, Tony worked at Pfizer. I worked, as you know, I worked at a uh... It was at the time it was Royal Numico. They owned Rexall Sundown, Metrics, and GNC. I was there with Jeff Stout. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the real world moniker, it's kind of weird. It's I, I look at it as if you understand what the private sector, how they think, particularly when it comes to supplements and nutrition, it'll help you understand, you know, them better when you communicate with them vis-a-vis, -vis, hey, you're looking for grant funding or something like that, because mm -hmm. it's important that you know the way they think and what, you know, what are the incentives for them. Whereas there are people who've just gone straight to academia and they really have no idea what's going on in, in the private sector when it comes to sports, nutrition and supplements. And, and that might be why, you know, going back you know, decades ago, why I got uh, and Jeff Stout got so much pushback um, when we left academia, because it was almost like we were traitors to the cause. It's like, no, yeah. actually, I want to learn. <laughs> I want to learn how they think. <laughs> if I know how mm -hmm. they think, it'll help me understand, you know, what what are what, the, what incentives they uh, they have? So, um, but going back to the idea that you know you'd rather communicate with physiologists because there are mechanistic things that are more interesting. The RD, the dietetics degree, didn't give you that, 
And yet that's, that's sort of where you started and that's where you ended up. And, and in a way, I, Lonnie, knowing you, I, I could have predicted that. <laughs> so, right. No, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but hey, sometimes you have sort of this uh, this journey that sort of winds. <laughs> it's never a straight line. <laughs> well, you know, uh, once you mentioned that dietetics as a term is kind of a, a brand, if you will. It's not just nutrition science. It encompasses other things. I talked about just like a food service, like cafeteria food service, food service management, things of that nature. Um, you know, business, there's other aspects to it beyond the science. And I, I like the science. I mean, I jumped through those hoops, but you know, there you go. I, I'm interested in the nutrition science. Just quickly, you um, so you actually then had to go through the full intern. I mean, here you are with your doctorate already, right? Oh, Researcher, yes, teacher, okay, experience, and then you 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 come back and went through the actual uh, internships and everything. Or did you do like that didactic program, or how'd you go about that? Yeah, I, I ended up doing it in two chunks because um, first uh. After I got my verification letter, like you know, Lonnie's taken all the courses he needs, he can do an internship. I went to the Cleveland Clinic. So I got picked among that first group to go to the Cleveland Clinic. I'm still friends with all of those you know, fellow interns. Uh, and some of them were non-traditionally aged. So that was cool, right? It wasn't like, here's the old guy. I mean, at the time I was only 30, you know, right. 31. Okay. Yeah. So, but the still, I, I know, mostly younger than me though. It, there was one that was older. Uh, and then I ended up actually finishing a lot of that stuff um, later, just because I was back and forth working in industry. But um, yeah, I mean, there was, I, I would joke with my wife at times, you know, like I, I've swallowed my pride so much, I'm just full, you know, like as far as going through that. But I was just hell bent and determined to say, you know, fine. And now I know what you know, and I know what mm -hmm. I know. So I know both sides of this. And it has looking back, like the whole Steve Jobs comment about connecting the dots after the fact, mm -hmm. connecting the dots, it, it did help me n understand a little bit more about what a third party accredited program is like, you know, like a healthcare license type program versus what I would call a traditional science program in exercise science or, you know, that kind of stuff, ex-phys, uh, where there is no specialty accreditor, you know, the university, the degree matters. And to this day, that's still my bias. I'm afraid that a lot of these third party accrediting bodies, um, you know, they'll say, for example, I was told many times your master's degree means in nutrition means nothing the, without the license. You have to have the RD and the LD, you know, otherwise it doesn't matter. And that made me very sad. I thought, but I put in much more time and money Absolutely. and got a lot more out of my master's degree, out of what the university gave me. Not right. what the third party accreditor gave me. So I value master's degrees and PhDs. I value those in and of themselves. Um, but I understand that people who, you know, they focus on clinical and licensure and all the things that go with that. Um, you know, that's what they value. Yeah, it's the difference between an academic and professional degree. I know it. Tony and I work in the same department, exercise and sports science. Um, and we and Tony's relatively new, but we have uh, been very adamant against third party accreditation because we are an academic uh, entity. We're not a professional degree. And once you start, you know, asking for third party accreditation, they will hamstring you yeah. um, and sort of put a box around you. And 
It's yes. you can't do that. It's like putting a box around science. It's like, no, we no, it makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. Um, well, what's your current position now? Tell the audience where you are and you know what you're up to. Well, right now I'm I'm mostly consulting. So I'm I'm at one of those crossroads. I feel the pull of academia again, you know. Um, but right now I'm consulting for the food industry. Uh, I'm also actually consulting with a, a local university. They want to build a graduate program. And we're talking about all the same stuff that you're talking about, Joey. All of the, you know, like we're not after specialty accredi accreditation. There's no license to science. You know, it's just about the degree. The degree and the research is what's going to matter. So um, that's where I am. Like I'm, I've just got my eye on the long game of early retirement, you know, if I can do that. And I'm willing to live on a shoestring budget to do it, right? I mean, I, I, I want to be able to do science and that kind of stuff, but I also don't want, you know, you know what the corporate world is like. It can be a little exploitative, exploitative you know, um, long hours and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm just trying to do what I can to, you know, I'm willing to live on peanut butter sandwiches and, and travel the, the country in my RV and do it before I'm 62. I've known too many people who turned 62 and then promptly died. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, let's face it, you're in your 50s or 60s. I don't want to get too deep on you, but nobody's going to bat an eye. You get cancer or heart disease or something like that uh, right. at at that age. And so I I rather live, you know, inexpensively and, and try to do like, um you know, consulting work and, um um, remote work and stuff like that. If I can, we'll see. We'll, well that's see. why, uh, that's, that's part of the reason I convinced Tony to leave New York and move to Florida. Yeah. RIP. <laughs> we got that Jimmy Buffett spirit, right? That's right. Yeah, and uh, he it's, summed it up so beautifully. But. It's 365 days of vacation down here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, let's, uh, let's, uh, switch tactics. Let's go to, um, um, the topic of the position stand on coffee. Now, when you first proposed this idea, I was like, this is a damn good idea because I'm a coffee addict. Um, a lot of people love coffee and oftentimes people conflate coffee and caffeine. Now, yeah. before we get to the position stand, there is a, a popular idea that is, that is running around social media, um, particularly by um, Andrew Huberman. He says this, he says, it is better that you wait two hours. Let's say you wake up, wait two hours, before you drink your coffee, um, so you don't get the afternoon crash. Now, I don't think there's a single RCT that that mentions that. And so I just wanted your comment on that because I'm an avid coffee drinker. In fact, the first thing I do when I wake up is I go to the coffee maker. That, yeah, me too. Because I love coffee. Yeah. I mean, there's. I suppose you could try. It's one of these things. You know what? Um, an old professor of mine who you know he once said, Lonnie, just because something sounds physio or sounds logical doesn't mean it's physiological. In other words, you got to go look. You need data, right? And so you can make these indirect arguments, I think, that, well, when you wake up for the first three hours or so, your cortisol levels are high. You don't want to pour extra stimulant on that and, you know, adrenal fatigue. All I don't, I, like you said, I haven't seen data that make me concerned. Um, the good outweighs the bad. Um I don't know. I, I personally, and I know people have genetic variations in how they respond and, you know, metabolize caffeine and all that kind of stuff. But uh, all said and done, I think I, I inherited it from my mom. She's a coffee fiend. I've always been one. I just feel like across time, my baseline is just 10% higher, whether it's cognition or muscular performance or whatever it is. 
Um, even if I do have a little bit of an afternoon crash or something like that, a lot of people will get sleepy in the afternoon, quite regardless whether they had coffee in the morning. Definitely. You know, that's multifactorial for sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually find that I get tired in the afternoon if I work out in the morning, which is almost every day. But I know when I don't work out, I'm not tired. <laughs> so, so for yeah. me, it's an exercise issue. It's not a coffee or caffeine issue. Now, yeah, comment yeah. a little bit on the coffee versus caffeine conundrum, how people tend to conflate the two. Yeah. I mean, one of my big things is always saying, you know, that coffee isn't just liquid caffeine. That's how most people look at it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you can find solid epidemiological data that Americans at least get more antioxidants in their diet from coffee than they do from fruits and vegetables. Now, that's a sad commentary, I think, on the way we eat. But thank God for the coffee, in a sense. Right. I mean, they love you, you just made fun of how I eat. Thank you very much. OK, well, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> on the days there are days that i probably don't get enough you know and so you know at least there's the antioxidants and coffee there's so many good things of course hundreds of compounds in coffee um i don't know i, I i'm always going to choose coffee over not coffee we do have to be careful and i know you guys are uh, attuned to this but i mean when you look at the general media they love echo chamber like confirmation bias like coffee is good for you chocolate is good for you but this is one where it really is i mean the preponderance of the evidence is that coffee really is good for you it has very high um nutrient density if you will because essentially there's no calories in the way that i drink coffee it's black coffee i like the notes of coffee you know um but i, I also think we have, we have to remember that coffee isn't just one thing i mean defining a cup of coffee is what makes a position paper so hard. Like what does the research say about coffee? Right. Oh my God. I mean, from the brew type to the grind to where it was grown and, you know, roasting, there's so many, many different things that it's hard to say that coffee is X. Um, but yeah, be because of all the other things in that, in the coffee, there's niacin like compounds and chlorogenic acid and a lot of these things. And over time, they look like they do some pretty good stuff for whether it's helping with uh, blood sugar control or, you know, uh, cognitive decline and different like neurodegenerative diseases and, and stuff like that. So um, I'm always wary about confirmation bias. I know science doesn't care what we want, um, but this is something that I both want. I have a personal interest in it <laughs> and the science looks good. So that just makes me happy. Yeah. And um, I mean, the fact that every major civilization consumes caffeine either in coffee or tea i guess in the far east it might be mostly tea but so many civilizations consume coffee that there has to be something to it other than it, you know it wakes you up now let's deal with the exercise component of comparing caffeine to e equal amount of caffeine in coffee is the response yeah. similar is there a sex difference is there an age difference at this point i mean there's not a, as nearly as much data on just coffee, you know, as opposed to caffeine pills or gum or, you know, in a pre-workout, there's just less. Um, overall, I would say similar impact, right? Make no mistake. I mean, caffeine is still a superstar in coffee. Of course it is. I know it's not just the caffeine. It's just this healthful combination that happens to include caffeine. The drawback, I would think if you're a, if you're what my buddy Phil would call a large mammal, you would have to get enough to get three to six milligrams per kg of your body weight, you'd have to drink a pot of coffee, right? Um, 
so there's that, you know, as far as the dosing side of it. But I, I almost think it would be silly to think that caffeine in, in coffee wouldn't do anything. I know a lot of the early work, they were trying to tease that apart. You know, that early stuff from, oh gosh, Terry Graham and even Costal, a lot of, you know, founding mm -hmm. fathers kinds of work. Um, you know, and, and to your point about sex differences and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've seen... It's always on the fringes of data, you know, like you look at data and it's just a trend in the data, but it's it's technically NS or sometimes it's just straight significant that women don't seem to break down coffee as quickly as men in several papers that I've seen. And it one of the ideas, at least, is that from a lay perspective, I guess you could say their liver is distracted by estrogens. And so the same enzyme systems that break down caffeine are busy with the estrogen. And so they don't break down caffeine as much. And that's supported. We, we collected some data. We looked at uh, higher like uh, epinephrine values, you know, more adrenaline. Uh, you can look at alertness. You can see data on women tend to get more jittery. Now, before anybody thinks, yeah, but women are a little smaller. This is just a dose, relative dose thing. No, uh, even when you co-vary and you adjust for body mass, you'll see some of these metabolic differences. It almost makes you a little sad that... <laughs> You know, as a guy, I might be getting less out of my coffee than if I were a woman. But, you know, I just get to drink more coffee. That's a fact. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Tony. Just no question. Then does that line of impact too? like we're talking coffee, but in, in terms of and you mentioned caffeine in the three to six uh, milligram per kilogram and all. But do we know, too, um, if the female has the a greater number or fewer number of adenosine receptors or some of the things that help input you know affect the impact of caffeine of course coffee and caffeine itself so certainly they're not breaking it down it appears as quickly correct yeah but is, is there anything too that is related to the effects regarding the adenosine receptors or any other mechanisms that we may know yeah no that's a good question i think that's one of those further research types of things you know from what the data i've seen it's it's about liver and, you know, P450 enzymes and breaking down the caffeine and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, who's to say? I mean, it's like so many other things in sports nutrition. We can't pretend women are slightly smaller men. That's absurd. Right, um, right. And so we do it. We just need to look at it. But I think we need to look at coffee uh, more, period. But I think those data are finally starting to come out. You're starting to see some meta analyses and stuff like, hey, yeah, coffee does work, whether it's power performance or more heavy, slower lifting or, you know, uh, aerobic exercise and all that kind of stuff, because there's, you know, different mechanisms at work here. Like you said, mostly adenosine, but, right. um, but multitude yeah. of them, correct. Yeah. Now, what would be some of the non-caffeine ingredients that are in coffee that might have an ergogenic effect? Um, because obviously there's so many ingredients or chemicals in coffee besides caffeine. Yeah. I mean, the superstar, I think, is chlorogenic acids. Uh, it's sort of a collection of similar compounds. But the chlorogenic acids are the ones that you see like, oh, coffee seems to re reduce diabetes risk, you know, or if you look at reaction time or some different cognitive markers and researchers are kind of playing with how much of this is just green coffee extract, which could be an entourage of things uh, versus just the chlorogenic acids. I think that's the superstar that, you know, needs more attention, whether it's sort of um, vascular effects and vasodilation or whatever it might be, cognitive effects, like neuroprotective effects. I think it's the chlorogenic acids by and large, but I mean, there's there's lots of ways to you know run down a rabbit hole when there's hundreds of compounds there. 
I think that it's sort of like the the weed thing, frankly, you know, with uh, this entourage effect of cabin, uh, cannabinoids where they, maybe they work together differently than they do when you take just one out. Because I know when they've done that with chlorogenic acids versus like green coffee extracts, they don't always get quite the same effect. So I, it sounds a little hippie maybe, but I kind of like the idea that there's just very natural, you know, just straight from the bean, run hot water through the beans. And it's this entourage effect that's working together um, for some of these health benefits, you know? Yeah, well, I think I've always had an, at least a, a, a passing thought about doing coffee research. And the stumbling block for me has always been this. When I get up in the morning and I make a cup of coffee, I guarantee you it's always different every morning depending on, how big the scoop is, because I don't measure the scoop. I just eyeball it. And sometimes I'm like, I'm going to put a shitload of coffee in here because I want it super black. So controlling for what that liquid is all the time has got to be mm -hmm. immensely difficult. And, and that's the part that always stymies me. I'm like, uh, would I trust students to do this? No. <laughs> do right. I want to do it? No. <laughs> so yeah. You know, the first time I did coffee research, we went up to Bill Evans' lab up in Marquette. Um and we were trying to brew coffee consistently. First of all, the big guys that were lifters in the study, again, they were drinking like a pot, you know, to try to get to that six migs per kg thing. But the research on how much it varies is straight disturbing. I mean, like almost a factor of two. Like you go get the same size Starbucks on a Monday versus a Friday. I think it was McCluster, uh that looked at some of that stuff, but like literally like 500 milligrams on one day and all the way down to like maybe 280 or something. Don't wow. quote me on the numbers, but huge variance because of brewing. Right. Um, we always used an instant coffee. We use Starbucks via because it's micro ground and uh, traditional just instant coffee. So it's kind of different and, and it's strong. Uh, so it's got about two and a half times the caffeine of regular instant coffee. So instead of a 70 milligrams, like in a, in a, you know, eight ounce cup or whatever, it had like 164, I think. So it has quite a bit of caffeine and plus or minus in the lab. We actually looked a, a buddy of mine. He's an analytical chemist plus or minus three milligrams of caffeine. Wow. So a lot of standardization there. And that's what we use. We gave people two packets of that via and it lit up people pretty good. Um, but that's how we try to deal with that. Cause you're right. Uh, you, you, even when you go to a restaurant or a coffee shop, like even like a Starbucks, you think everything is so standardized with the food service that it would be darn near identical. And it's not, it's just not. So if you really, if you're a stickler for super, super, you know, same thing every time via was the way I went with that. Uh, cause it was strong and it was consistent. But again, that's instant coffee, not right. real coffee. Oh, I know. <laughs> so <laughs> I, got I, me. Yeah, I'm someone yeah. who does not like instant coffee. I, uh, to me, it's it's just not doesn't taste good. <laughs> it's kind of wrong. I know. Now, I will tell you, in my mind, the Via it, it tastes way better than like a Taster's Choice kind yeah, of you know yeah. Nescafe, but it's still not real coffee, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like you go, like I'll go to a coffee shop and they're like, I don't like light roasts. Okay, so light roasts even... are are often Ethiopian beans. To me, they're sour. Uh, and they roast them more lightly. It's just, you know, it's it's like wine. Tell a wine yeah. connoisseur that wine is just wine and she's going to backhand you. Like that's, <laughs> where was it grown and under what conditions and what soil and what altitude and all this stuff. And coffee is exactly the same thing. So, 
Yeah, I mean, some people would critique me for saying, oh, you like dark roast, but then that masks some of the flavors. I don't know. I just like darker, heavy. I mean, I like Guinness beer. I like darker, heavier drinks, you know, so um, I'm just not one for the lighter. They'll say bright. Oh, it's it's a bright, you know, blonde uh, roast. And I'm like, that's just sour to me. That's a euphemism. That sounds <laughs> Yeah, the instant, maybe the instant coffee is like buying wine in a box or something. It's like it is, it is. <laughs> I concede that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I just want to ask one thing too. Like, so we have a pretty good, you know, we have some good knowledge of where the range is for the ergogenic benefit, right, and the performance benefits. Do we have a general parameter, maybe, on? how many cups a day would have the health benefit, you know, or how much there. So, you know, we'll say, Hey, maybe, a I mean, it's often debated, so I'm not comparing yeah. it perfectly, but Oh, one glass of wine may have this benefit, but two, no good. Do we know, do we have that with coffee at all from a health benefit perspective? Yeah. That you're making me paint with a broad brush here, but if I had to put a number on it, I'd say four cups a day, four. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, wait, 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 Lonnie, define a cup because I, I have a large mug and is that, no, <laughs> like, no, you're right. I mean, being realistic within, you know, any type of external validity, like how do people actually do this? You know, like an eight to 12 ounce cup, not a 16 okay. or 20 ounce mug like people often do. So maybe two of your, of what you do, you know, is a like cup. if you, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, four eight-ounce cups, I think, is okay, what we're talking yeah, about. We or if we even said four eight to 12-ounce cups, I probably do five, I don't know what a regular coffee cup is, you know, 12 to 16 ounces. I probably do about four or five of those a day. Okay. Um, but that's what works for me. So those tiny cups you get at Denny's that holds like, you know, a tablespoon, that, that's what, a fourth of a cup? Because that's what Denny's has. Well, and that's the problem, right? When you say, oh, per cup in 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 a culinary sense, it's eight fluid ounces. Are you kidding? That's that's not, that's maybe two thirds of a regular monk, you know? <laughs> so yeah, not enough. All right, so about four, <laughs> you know, we know we don't know exactly, but four, eight ounce would be a, re yeah. a reasonable assertion. Okay, good. I think so. Yeah, when it comes to, and you know, it's interesting when you look at a lot of like the blood sugar control and the diabetes reduction uh, risk, uh, a lot of that stuff, the the epidemiological papers, the big broad population stuff, it all looks really good. But then when you go do acute stuff and you try to do these interventions, it doesn't always pan out the same way. And it leaves people scratching their head. Now, right. to me, it might be that, well, coffee is not just one thing. Maybe whatever those researchers chose as their intervention doesn't cut it, you know. Uh, but for whatever reason, yeah, there seems to be a, a discrepancy uh, between interventions that last X number of weeks, right, which is going to be stopped at some point, three months, six months, whatever it is, or less. Uh, and then these broad-based population types of studies. So I don't know. Yeah, the observational data is interesting. The um, I know there's data showing that coffee in general or coffee consumption will decrease the risk of various cancers. But then I've seen some other observational data where it might increase the risk of other cancers. It's 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 kind of all over the place. I don't know the literature well enough, but it seems the general pattern is cancer risk drops. Is there a difference in terms of what kinds of cancers? Are you familiar with that data at all? Uh, I've seen some fascinating stuff on, um, like usually you'll see reductions in cancers, like oral cancer, throat cancer, stuff like that. You'll see reductions. That kind of makes sense. You're washing these antioxidants over your palate kind of thing. 
Uh, I haven't seen an increase in any particular cancer. I mean, I know in California, you know, they were hypersensitive about, was it acrylamide, I think, in the coffee? I mean, if you take one compound out of this huge matrix, we were just talking about like this, you know, uh, entourage effect. So if you if you bastardize it and you take one compound and you super concentrate it, could that cause something? Well, it was enough to satisfy people in California to put a warning on coffees, which I think is absurd. Um, <laughs> but I, sense. yeah. <laughs> but it's a good point. I mean, cancers, you can't act like cancer is all one thing either, of course. So, yeah. I want to switch <clears throat> topics slightly dealing with um, <clears throat> Tony and I have had this discussion about because uh, we've been around a long time. Uh, it seems like um, when 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 I teach class and I see 18 to 21 year olds, I guess I've, I've convinced myself that I'm still 18 to 21. But then when I wake up, I know I'm not 18 to 21. <laughs> I'm kind of jealous as I'll how quickly these uh, young people recover. Now, in terms of exercise training on a personal level, you used to bodybuild. Tony actually hates lifting weights because he, he gains muscle too easily. If that, it, it, that's kind Tragic. of crazy. Tragic. <laughs> Tragic. So <laughs> as someone, because we've all gone through this evolution, like I, I'm rarely even in the gym now. I just I paddle. I mean, I'm outside all yeah. the time. Your personal evolution from bodybuilding to what is it now... I, I would imagine your goals have changed quite a bit from being yeah. a young grad student to now you're older and wiser. So how has it changed for you? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, I started off, I started, I, I did um, like tournament Taekwondo for about seven years in my late teens and early twenties. And I started the bodybuilding stuff even before then. And up to a point they were complimentary, right? I got stronger. So I did better in, you know, in tournaments and that kind of thing. But at some point, I started getting heavy enough, it started becoming a burden. Um, and I remember my instructor saying, and he, by the way, you know him, I think he was a, he was a doc student at Kent State, and he's a Taekwondo instructor, we'll just leave it at that. But um, if, if not, we can talk later. But he said, Lonnie, you don't have to be Mr. This or Mr. That. It's interfering with your Taekwondo. But I did. I said, I do. I, I don't I, I don't know what else to do. I felt like Tom Platt's like it's just a calling like a priest. You know what I mean? I have to do this. Um, and I and at some point I stopped the Taekwondo, partly because I went to grad school in San Diego and I, I you know, changing schools and all that kind of stuff. Um, not not the grad school, but the uh, my martial arts gym. I, I, I don't know. I, I had loyalty to the old gym. It, it would have been weird. I don't know if I was comfortable doing it. So I just plunged into the into the lifting and trying to take up more space and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I always lifted with bigger guys, like a lot of power lifters and that kind of stuff. And I am not a very big framed person, you know, but I got up to about 230 at 5'9". So that's pretty heavily that's built. Amazing. I don't know what that BMI is, but that's pretty, pretty beefy. Did you walk without heavy breathing? No. <laughs> um, I would, we, uh, yeah, I would grab a knees at the tops of stairs. You know, I was force feeding like crazy. Uh, I would tie my shoes. I'd bend over to tie my shoes and I'd take a breath, you know, and <laughs> exhale. I'm tying my shoe. Um, and it's uncomfortable to over to force feed like that. And to your point, I don't do that anymore. Uh, and I can't lift that heavy anymore. At some point, I remember I had I had four or five on my back for my usual sets. because That's as heavy as I went. I know for power lifters, that's nothing. But for me, that was a lot. I would do a set of like six or eight, typically with like four or five. Um, and I thought, what am I doing? Because I had I was done competing. I, I actually competed in my last time in my mid 40s. Uh, and I just thought, 
you know, my arms are going numb. I've got joint problems all over the place. I know if you talk to a lot of people in NSCA, they'll say the official position is that, you know, lifting doesn't really cause, you know, joint damage and all that. Eh, all the old guys I know who train their butts off with heavy weights, they're, they've got problem, you know, they've got joint issues. And now it's also family history. Right. Um, but, um, so I don't know. I'm just trying to find that niche. I always told myself I'd go back to martial arts, you know, and try to maintain my flexibility and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm actually at that crossroads with that too, right now, to be honest with you. Like, what do I do? I'm a lifer. I'm never going to not lift. I, I can't not lift. Uh, it's like brushing my teeth. It's like hygiene, you know, um, uh, and it's just embedded in me. So, but without the goal of trying to take up more space, you know, or get shredded, uh, every couple of years, um, and compete, um, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. All I know is I'm lifting now. I've actually been doing this weird experiment because I want to, I'm trying to travel a little bit and, and just got a, a membership at one of these, you know, it's planet fitness, you know, and I can, I can barely stand it to be honest. I'm not much of a spokesperson for them. The, yeah. the free weight area is almost non-existent. I can't stand the, you know, these, you know, isolation type machines and stuff it's driving me nuts. I just want a barbell in the middle of the room, you know, and, always, and the damn purple color is annoying. Oh man. It's tough. It's tough. I don't know how long I can do it, but um, I am starting to get an idea. You know, we were just talking on the Iron Radio podcast about, remember those old like bodybuilding fold out posters? It's like just like 12 movements. It's just like overhead yes. press, bench, row, you know, you can get really far just doing that kind of multi-joint compound movements, just a barbell, like I said, in the middle of the floor, as instead of just going around and doing one set of, you know, 28 different machines. I don't know. Um, with limited range of motion and, you know, they're all like sagittal plane. It, it, I just, I don't know. It, I, I'm not a big fan. So I'm trying to decide that right now. That's a long winded response to you, but uh, trying to decide where to go with this stuff. No, it's always interesting to see how people evolve over the years in terms of what they do. I mean, I think the only person who is stuck to hardcore bodybuilding that, that we all know of is Darren Willoughby. I think yeah yeah he still goes he, at it he still yeah. goes at it he still does heavy weights and I mean you know I I kind of tease him a little I'm like uh, uh, let's say we're walking to a restaurant I'm like are we doing Darren Willoughby pace or are we doing regular pace you know to, <laughs> to get to the restaurant right right <laughs> because if we're doing your pace buddy it'll take us a while so he's like hey bro yeah. you I like taking you know. My <laughs> He can pull it off. I remember Bill Pearl said something to us once on a podcast. He said, you know, once I was got into my 50s, I decided I wasn't going to take my shirt off in public anymore. And, you know, kudos to the guys who still compete uh, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, at some point you're going to lose a certain element of skin quality. Um, you're going to get a little that's, saggy. Yeah, and that's this what and that. goes first, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just don't want that personally. I, like I said, kudos to the guys who do that, you know, because, you know, we're all fighting father time. You know, there's an old Tolkien quote I love about fighting the long defeat. Um, I'm ready to fight. I'll fight the long defeat. You know, uh, Father Time's going to kick my butt, but um, I don't want to compete. I don't want to stand on on stage in front of a thousand people in my underwear anymore. <laughs> You're right. He always wins. <laughs> yeah. I, well, Father Time does always win, guys. But I think we got to take it to the judge's scorecard. 
and go to a split decision at least, right? <laughs> That's right. That's we, right. Let's just stretch it out and see if we can take it all 12 rounds. That's what we I love it. Do. That's right. Yeah, yep. I know Tony's uh um I always say for me what seems what seemed to disappear the quickest was um speed or explosive yeah. strength. It oh. it just disappears and Tony's and Tony's like, you know, hey, you should try doing some sprints on the track because if if you work up to it, because I'm always afraid if I do any sprints, I'll just yank something. Out. It'll be uh, the muscle just come off the bone. Absolutely. But, but hey, I got to respect Tony. He he still is doing sprints. It's yeah, it, no sprinting and jumping. But gentlemen, I think we can. And remember, we had um, who was speaking to this? Was it uh, Joey? We uh, before, but we were talking about the necessity for power, but. Yeah. Listen, you, you start with a goblet squat with lightweight in place and just do sagittal plane, high velocity movements. Then you move it to a box. Then whatever pace you can sprint at, sprint at it. But I do see it as the, the quality that will go the quickest and the one that needs to be preserved the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's all that stuff, of course, with sarcopenia and how it's more about muscle quality and strength and it's not just mass. Right. I think you posted something online I saw recently where you were saying, like, here was my workout. You were like defying age or something. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, yes, yes. And I, I'm like, that would have tore every muscle in my body. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. I called it a sprint, Lon, but it's a very loose interpretation of a sprint. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The thing is, you still think you're moving fast and yeah. you're getting whiplash watching everybody sprint by you. But nevertheless, um, I just see it's the one quality I still use. I still do judo, judo, jujitsu, grapple around, and it, it has to be preserved. And I, as we just stated, I think I think you can hold strength. I think you can hold some flexibility, but the elasticity and that neural drive and that explosion will go if you're not all over it. And I don't oh, want to yeah. lose it. That's most important to me. And then it's a slippery slope, right? You, you lose the explosion, so then you don't want to do it. So you, you exactly. because that's, yeah, that's such specificity, isn't it? Like if you don't do it, because uh, that's what I've been falling into and trying not to too much is I was always, when I was uh, competing in bodybuilding, uh, my buddy called me a tissue assassin because I would do negatives, eccentric stuff for everything. I would just tear up tissue, micro trauma, you know, not, not hurt myself, but get so sore I could barely walk up the stairs. And right. that doesn't have to be fast or explosive. And then at some point, like almost to your point, uh, I don't know, maybe mid-career, I started throwing in occasional days with just light speed work, like 30% exactly. on a bar and just explosion, maximal dynamic effort kind of stuff. No um, doubt. Yeah. Because yep. otherwise yeah, you're ready to Yep, the light load and just move as quick as you can. And, yep. and that's how you build back into it. I don't think anybody should get on track right away and sprint, but start with simple sagittal plane squats. Move yep. your, you know, start moving quicker and then open it up and then go to jumps and then... I went into place and, you know, lunges, explosion, and then just got back on the track. It, it, you it need to post. Done. You have to be patient, but it can be done. <laughs> you need to post something online like, here's the way to start from scratch, you know. Actually, you know what? You're right. I, I think because I did rebuild that. I, I really lost that ability, but I took my time and very methodically said, I'm getting this back. I I, I can't live without it. So Yeah. Yeah, because you don't want to – yeah, I, I hear you. Because everything is – I don't know. You just feel less athletic. You can't produce power. There's no power output. There's no exactly. rate of force development, you know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it kind of sucks. I'm, I'm going to have to get into that hell. My goal is to uh, skip rope one minute and then 
two minutes. Great so, start again. Very low level plyos for me. Yeah. And hopefully, because I, I remember as a kid, I could skip rope for literally 60 to 90 minutes and I it's would actually nuts, do right? that. And it's like, okay, I know I've done it before, but my muscles were really quite young then. So one, <laughs> one last topic, Lonnie, I want you to comment on. It's not, it's not research you and I do, but I've seen this, um, if you look at the, I guess we'll look at the training literature and I get really frustrated when I read training studies. Um, if you go back to the 1960s, I don't know if you remember, there was a guy named Richard Berger, Dick Berger. He, he, he was doing the sets and rep stuff, like three, comparing three by 10 to five by six or whatever. I, don't quote me on the exact numbers. And now we just see sort of the same nickel and dime studies where it's sets and reps, sets and reps. And for some reason, it annoys me because at the end of the day, no one ever follows those training programs that you see published. We follow training principles, <clears throat> overload. You can do more sets, you can do mm -hmm. more reps, you can do more weight versus, well, should we compare three by 10 to a 10 by three protocol? It's like, who gives a shit? I just want what you think about that and, and Tony pipe in as well. Oh, let me, one of the most clever things that I heard an, an old coach uh, say, he's a buddy of mine, but uh, was when he worked with, when he worked with his, his team, they were powerlifting team, he prescribed a dose of iron. And I don't mean milligrams of dietary iron, like total reps. He's like, I want you to do, you know, X number of reps. Um, yeah, you could talk about a percent range, but make it challenging, you know, do five. To, so it's, you can only do five to eight, you know, repetitions, whatever it might be. You could put percentages on it. But he looked at it like a dose, like because then all of the, the teammates would say, well, how many sets, you know, of how many reps? He's like, I don't care. I don't care if you do this all, of singles. Or if you do it in sets of 10 or whatever it is. Um, but I like the idea over, over time. I love the simplicity of a dose, like a total mm -hmm. dose of iron with an effective uh, weight. Because we all know for muscle mass and stuff like that, there's a certain volume requirement. Um, and that kind of addresses it. I just think it's an elegant way to do that. Like how many total reps with a meaningful weight go? And I get it. If you're a power lifter and you have to be more specific than that, that's fine. But if you're going to, you know, he would send his guys to go do curls or or they would do bent rows or something. Now, remember, they're power lifters. So this is all totally accessory, even cosmetic stuff. And he'd say, I just get a total of 75 reps. That's it. Just go. Just go do your you, thing. You could actually cluster set it if you wanted, but get there then, right? Yeah, yeah just get there. Get the total yeah. dose. And it addresses the volume thing pretty well, I think. Uh, so, yeah, I thought, I thought that was just kind of cool. Yeah, because volume, I mean, volume is probably the, pr uh, the prime determinant of the adaptive response. I mean, that even applies to endurance training. I mean, there's a point where you just got to do volume. <laughs> if you don't do yeah. enough volume, you're just not going to get the adaptations. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I've always found it odd that, you know, we're still back to the sets and reps kind of research. And it's, it's you know, it's it, it never really made that much sense to me because it would be like, and I always take I always take the endurance uh, training analogy it would be like saying, well, okay, should we run 30 miles a week and do 80% of it at this speed and 20% at this speed or 50% at this speed and 50% at that speed? It's like, but coaches don't train athletes that way. Nobody trains anyone that way. So, um, and that's always been my criticism of training studies. It's that, well, no one ever trains like that. I think it's a greater luxury to look into that too when, 
when you're looking at training in a single capacity or discipline, for example, your goal is endurance or hypertrophy. I mean, certainly when it's from a performance-based perspective, then you just got to keep an eye on this volume, couple it with the other training intensities. And there it's just whatever the lowest minimal, you know, the lowest dose possible to exert the greatest effect. I think there may be some substance there. Like, you know, you got an MMA fighter training three times a day. For sure, we want the least dose possible with the most results. But I think, you know, the, the when you're going into that one discipline, I want to increase hypertrophy. I think there may be more expansive liberty, like Lonnie was saying, hit this target, get that volume, however you get there, and you'll get the results, you know? Yeah. 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 I think there are uh, nutrition parallels with that kind of stuff, too. Like, eat this much protein, you know? Mm -hmm. I get it. Like, you might want to spread it out throughout the day and all that kind of stuff. But Or calories. We say calories are king, maybe you know, you got to eat more uh, to be, you know, a bigger person. And yeah, it's nice to have a an overall goal and people can get there in different ways. You know, how many diets are, are, are there intermittent fasting or paleo or keto or all these different things. And so many of them have like um, a, a caloric deficit as one of the primary end games that they produce. Yeah, there are different mechanistic things you can talk about on the way. Um and I'm not saying that it, all of them are bunk. I don't, I'm not saying that necessarily, but I, you know, it's nice to have an end game, like get this many reps, brother, you yeah. know? Um, so, yeah. Hey Lonnie, it's, uh, it's been great having you on the show. Could you tell the audience a little bit about your podcast and where people, if they want to reach you, where can they reach you? Yeah. I mean, ideally they could just do it through the podcast. Uh, I actually had to stop. We were talking about corporate, you know, the corporate world. I actually had to stop podcasting. They, told me one of my <laughs> main people that I was working with said you can't do that anymore so I stopped for two years but we resurrected iron radio uh that's been going on and Phil my buddy Phil kept doing it and Mike Nelson and those guys uh while I was away but that's been going on for about 15 years wow. we started that in 09 so I don't know what that is but uh so iron radio would be one way it comes out every week um or nutritionradio.org, I simulcast Iron Radio. So uh, it actually comes out through two channels. But yeah, nutritionradio.org, all nutrition radio, all one word. Um, you know, for, on, everywhere you can find podcasts. This on Ooh. YouTube and Spotify and all the typical channels. That's right. Yeah, YouTube is sort of our backup. YouTube has always frustrated me. You end up with a handful of views. I don't know. It's, we just use it like a backup, frankly. But yeah, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, nutritionradio.org is on all that stuff right now. And later this year, I might work on, uh, you know, getting Iron Radio to climb the charts too. But for right now, I'm simulcasting it anyway. So Nutrition Radio is pure, like academic nerd stuff. And whereas Iron Radio is, you know, about lifting and being right. big. Very cool. Very cool. Well, hey, uh, thanks for appearing on the Sports Science Dudes. You're an official Sports Science Dude now that you're on cool. the show. Tony, any <laughs> final words for Lonnie? No, just great information, good thoughts, Lonnie. We appreciate it. A, a very unique and unique journey. You've been through every side of it, and I've uh, enjoyed learning about it. And I'm glad we all know where to follow you now, because I'm going to be tuning in a little more on the Iron Radio myself. So Awesome. Yeah, we'll get you guys on the show for sure, both of you. All right, yeah. fantastic. Great. Thanks, Lonnie. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Take care.